You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. The secret of contentment is what? Self-sufficiency. Contentment is self-sufficiency. Remember the first sermon? I defined contentment as that ability to respond just as Jesus wants you to, no matter what your circumstance. Therefore, you can accept contentedly whatever happens to you, even though it might rip you apart inside, because you know regardless of what's happening to you, regardless of the feelings that you have, you still have all that you need to respond as a Christian. That's contentment. That was the first sermon. The second sermon I suggested in order to understand how to get that, how to be content, how to learn to respond that way, you had to be a theist. And all I meant by that was that there is a personal God. You must understand he exists because the secret of contentment depends upon the existence of this personal God. And last week, the secret of contentment that I discussed was very simply this, Philippians 4.13, that I do have right now, and so do you if you're a believer this morning, I do have all the power that I need right at this moment to respond exactly as the Bible directs me to, no matter what might be happening in my life. I have that power right this moment. How come it doesn't seem like I do? How come I don't experience much of that? How come my life is one of successive defeats so much of the time? How do we make the secret work? How do we lay hold of the power? That's today. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 10, first of all. Then we'll read the passage that is in the bulletin. But Matthew chapter 10 first. Just for one verse. Matthew chapter 10. And verse number one reads like this, And having summoned his twelve disciples, the Lord Jesus gave them authority or power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. The Lord gave them all the power they needed to heal every kind of sickness. Look at Matthew chapter 17. Starting at verse 14, Matthew 17 and verse 14, remember now the Lord has just recently given his disciples all the power that they need to cure every kind of sickness. Matthew 14, when they came to the multitude, a man came up to the Lord, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, he's an epileptic, he's very ill, he often falls into the fire and often into the water, and I brought him to your disciples, and they couldn't cure him. They couldn't cure him. The Lord gave him all the power. They couldn't cure him. And Jesus answered, turning to his twelve, referring to them, I believe, in verse 17, and says, O unbelieving, perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring them here to me. And Jesus rebuked him. Don't you get the air of easiness there? And Jesus rebuked him. And the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Jesus using the same power which he had earlier given to his disciples and they couldn't use. And the disciples came to Jesus privately, scratching their heads and said, Lord, what happened? Why couldn't we cast it out? 
I thought you promised us the power back in Matthew 10. Didn't work. The Lord said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it'll move. Nothing shall be impossible to you. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. I want you to think back as to what actually happened back in these days. Remember that the Bible is not simply a fairy story book about some interesting made-up characters which somebody thought it'd be interesting to write a book about. These are real people, just like me, just like you. A number of years ago, a number of fellows gathered around a man. This man happened to be God, walking in the flesh. And this man, this God-man, said to his disciples, fellows, you've got all the power to go out and cure every sickness you come across. And I suppose that just like a new Christian, when you first lay hold of the fact that Jesus Christ died for your sins, you put your faith in him, you experience something of the power that God has in your life, you go out and you live for Jesus and the power is there and you're excited, and I imagine the disciples are going around just curing everybody they can find. You know, having a great old time. Hey, we got the power. And they hit a snag. A man brings his boy. He says, fellas, I hear you can cure people, can you? Yeah, yeah. Will you cure my son? Sure. Now picture what happened. I imagine that Peter walked over to the boy and I don't know what he did. He healed. He didn't get healed. Peter says, well, let me, let me try again. He healed. He didn't get healed. The father said, hey, what's wrong, Peter? I thought you could do this. Peter Scratched his head and said, I, I don't know. I think there's a power shortage. <laughs> Father takes his boy to the Lord, no doubt a little bit disgusted, and says, Lord, will you help me with my boy? My boy's ill. I took him to your disciples, and they tried to cure him, and, and they couldn't, and I asked them why, and they said that they didn't have enough power. Perhaps. That's what they said. And the Lord turns and looks at his red-faced disciples, he says, fellas, you really try my patience sometimes. I gave you all the power you needed. There's no power shortage. You just don't know how to make the power work. You don't know how to lay hold of this power. Power is down abundance. As a matter of fact, let me go a step further. The Lord's still talking to his disciples. See that mountain over there? Remember I was just transfigured on it just a little bit ago? Remember Peter, James, John, we're up there together? that real mountain, that literal piece of land, do you know that if it's God's will to have that mountain move, that you have all the power you need to make that mountain move? Nothing shall be impossible to you, nothing at all, when you learn how to lay hold of the power that works within you. Nothing will be impossible to you, nothing that my Father wills will you be unable to do. You have all the power you need to move mountains. I think if I had been there, I'd have turned at that point to Thomas, figuring maybe he had his doubts too. And I'd have said, what are you talking about? He says that I can move mountains. I can't even move my hand away from the cookie jar. And he tells me I can move mountains. How's it work? What are you talking about? Don't you suppose if you were there, you'd have had similar questions? Don't you suppose that if you were there, you'd have said something like, you know, I am just so worried about so much. I'm so worried about my health or my job or my money or my, 
my, my, my boyfriend situation or my girlfriend situation or my marital situation or my kids. I'm so worried and I just don't have to have any power to get rid of this. I'm just caught up in my worry. He says, I can move mountains. I can't get rid of my worry. Or maybe if you were there, you'd have turned to one of us and waited till the Lord was out of earshot. The Lord had kind of moved away so he couldn't hear you talk. And you'd have said, well, you know, I'm depressed. I'm suffering from inertia. I just don't know how to get up and move. I just don't find the power within me to live the life that God wants me to live because I'm so depressed. Things have gone so wrong. And he tells me I have power to move mountains. I don't believe it. I, well, I guess I believe it. He said so, but I sure don't know how to lay hold of it. I don't know how to make the power work. Another might whisper, I have a very bad habit. Temper, gossip. That's a sexual temptation that you regularly give in to some sort of a problem and you'd have whispered to one of us you'd have said he's talking about moving mountains I can't resist this bad habit whenever the temptation comes up I seem to always give in I pray for power but it's never there I, I guess we have the power but I sort of had to lay hold of it and as we're there debating among ourselves what the Lord meant can't you picture this now and here I become a little fanciful but just picture it for a minute the Lord turning around he was off a little distance and he says you thought I couldn't hear you but I heard every word you forgot I was God and, uh, fellas, you're all wrong. You really do have the power. You just don't know how to lay hold of it. You really do have the power. It's all there. And the way to lay hold of it is readily apparent in the Word. If you just read your Scripture, you'd find the way to lay hold of the power. You'd find, you'd find the way to lay hold of this secret of contentment that no matter what happens to you, no matter what kind of depression or anxiety or worthy or, or worry or fear, whatever it might be, You'd find that you have all the power you need to take care of that, every bit of it. You don't know how to lay hold of it. The Lord turns and walks away. And we call out, Lord, tell us how to lay hold of it. And he turns around and says two words. Study Joshua. Study Joshua? What's that got to do with it? And he walks away. And we figure, well, if... The Lord tells us to say Joshua, maybe we ought to. Now that's not Matthew 17. But that's what I think he might have said. Let me tell you why I think he might have said that. Let me tell you why I think if we're going to understand how to lay hold of the power that God has within us, that we need to look at the book of Joshua. In order to explain that, let me go back a little bit and give you a two-minute Bible lesson. Remember, remember that Genesis is the book of beginnings. In the book of Genesis, we have the introduction of sin into the world. In the book of Genesis, we have the introduction of God's plan for redemption. In the book of Genesis, we have the introduction of God's working out that plan when he called to himself a man named Abraham and began to, this process of calling to himself a people to be his own, to recover us from the effect of sin, from the death that we had plunged ourselves into by our rebellion against God. Genesis is the book of beginnings. Exodus is the book of redemption, where God now says, yes, the fall occurred, I'm going to redeem you. And then Exodus, in picture form, is where God redeems his people out of Egypt. Egypt standing for the world, the world of sin. And God redeems me out of Egypt. God makes me to be freed by the blood of the Lamb. Exodus, the book of redemption. Leviticus is the book of worship. Now that he's redeemed me out of Egypt, now God says, I want you to learn how to talk to me. I want you to learn how to worship me. I want you to learn how to have fellowship with me. I want you to learn how to approach me. That's Leviticus. Then Numbers, now that we understand something about how to worship God, we're called out of Egypt, we've, we've fallen, we're sinners, we've been saved, we're thinking about who God is, and now we try to live. But in Numbers, we live 
in the wilderness. The Christians walk in the wilderness. The Christians walk a repeated failure and God's long suffering, patience, and his discipline. That's numbers. Deuteronomy is the book of transition. The book between the wilderness failure and the spiritual power in the land of Canaan. Deuteronomy is the book where Moses says, fellows, you're going to go and experience the power that God has for you. The power that God has given you when he redeemed you out of the land of Egypt. You've been walking through numbers without any effect whatsoever. You've been looking like a bunch of people who have no power at all. And you're going to move into the land of spiritual power. Let me tell you a few things as you prepare to enter into the experience of spiritual victory. Let me tell you three things. There are three key words in Deuteronomy. The first is remember. Many, many times the word remember occurs in Deuteronomy. Remember what God has done. Hear what God is saying. And then do what God commands. Remember, hear, and do. And then Joshua takes us on. We're out of Egypt. We've been saved. We understand something about how to talk with God. We know what fellowship with Him means in some way. We're still stumbling around the wilderness, but now we cross over Jordan, and now we experience something about how to lay hold of the power of God in our lives. That's the book of Joshua. You see? That's why the Lord might say, study Joshua, if you want to learn how to lay hold of the secret of contentment. Let's take a look at Joshua this morning. I want you to notice three facts about this man, Joshua. Three facts about Joshua, which if you'll understand, I believe you'll have some indication of... How lay hold of the power? Joshua was a man who experienced great spiritual power in his lifetime. How did he lay hold of it? As you look at the history of the man Joshua, you'll find out three things about him, many other things too, but I'm picking on three, which I think are salient. Three things which, if you understand, I think perhaps we'll have some lessons on how to lay hold of the power to really move mountains, the mountains of personal difficulties that you're going through, the mountains of anxiety and resentment and depression. The three facts are these. Let me state them, then I'll discuss them. First, Joshua was rescued out of Egypt by God's power. Joshua was born in Egypt. He was one of those who was brought out of Egypt by the Passover lamb. First fact, he was rescued out of Egypt by God's power. Second fact, he did not cop out from responsibility. We'll see where that is a little bit later. Third fact, he accepted without complaint a very difficult circumstance. He accepted without complaint a very difficult circumstance. This is all in the history of the person Joshua. You don't start studying Joshua reading Joshua. You start studying Joshua by reading the first five books of the Bible and seeing where Joshua's name appears. Seeing what Joshua has done. How did he get to the point where he could lay hold of the power that is demonstrated in the book of Joshua? First fact, he was rescued out of Egypt by God's power. Recently, Recently, I spoke with a man who was experiencing a very, very severe trial. In the middle of this terrible trial that he was experiencing, he said to me, he said, Larry, you, you know how weak I am. Would you pray for me that I'll have the power from God to get through? Remember, as I, I looked at him, I, I wanted to say all the verses that occurred to me in 2 Corinthians 12 about my, in my weakness, God's power is made perfect, and I do all things through Christ. I'm crucified with Christ. I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. I wanted to talk about work out your own salvation, for it's God that worketh in you, both the will and do of his good pleasure. I wanted to talk about the power that we have, but you know, I couldn't say a word about that power. You know why? Because the man was dead. 
I don't mean physically. The man was spiritually dead. He had not yet been rescued out of Egypt. He was still an unbeliever. So many times I, I've talked with people who are experiencing very difficult circumstances, and they wonder, where's the power to make it? And I say, I, I don't know how to get hold of this power. And one of the reasons sometimes that, that perhaps you this morning are having a hard time laying hold of the power that you want to really live that abundant life, to respond as you should responsibly and effectively so you can experience the joy that God has for you, maybe the reason that you can't experience the power is perhaps you've never been rescued out of Egypt. Do you understand what it means to be rescued from sin, from death? Do you understand what it means to be saved? Do you understand what it means to be a believer? When I use the word believer, to be a Christian? The greatest heresy today that I hear is that being a Christian means that you follow Jesus. It's a heresy? It really is. In the minds of many people, I'll tell you why. Because what they're saying is the way to be a Christian is to do what Jesus taught. If I follow Jesus' teachings, if I live according to the Bible, then I'll be accepted by God. But that isn't the picture at all. That isn't the picture at all. Christians, be praying now as I present the gospel. What is the gospel? What does it mean to be a Christian? Let me tell you what it means in a little different way. I want you to picture yourself in a courtroom. You're in a courtroom now, and you're standing before the judge. You've been charged with a crime, and you know you're guilty. You've committed the sin. You've committed the crime. And the judge, you know, is a fair judge. He's also a righteous judge. He turns to you with a verdict, and he says you're guilty. Your guilt problem is not some psychological feeling that can be cured by a psychologist. We're not going to cure your guilt problem by sending you into therapy. Your guilt problem is objective and real. You have broken the law of the universe, my law, says God the judge, and you're guilty, and I sentence you to die. And you stand there. You look at the judge and you say, any way out of this? The judge says you're guilty, and the soul that's in it that must die. The bailiff grabs you by the arm, takes you back to the back door, leading you down the hallway to the execution chamber. Just before you get to that back door, a man walks in. And the man doesn't even look at you. He stops and talks to the bailiff for a minute, and he says, just wait here a sec. And then he doesn't even talk to you. His business is not with you. And he walks to the judge. That's who his business is with. And he says, Your Honor, I'm not a criminal. I don't deserve to be executed. He does. I agree with you. But you know, I love him. Will you execute me in his place? Will you let me go to the execution chamber and die? If I'm willing to do that, Judge, will you set him free? The judge says, yes, the law would be satisfied. The law would be satisfied. The punishment would be paid. And this man walks out of court with a bailiff holding on to him now. He's let go of your arm. And he has his hands on this man. And you hear him go down the hallway to the execution chamber. And you listen to him die. And you walk out. And you're stunned by all this. What happened? And you're free. And you sit down in the steps of the courtroom. You're a free man. Life is open to you now. And you say, I'm not sure if I understand all this. What, what really happened? He died for me. And you start crying. You're in grief about this man that suffered the death penalty for you. You don't know how long you're sitting there crying, but after a while you notice a, a feeling of a hand on your shoulder. And you turn to look up. And it's that man. I thought you died. And he says, I did, but I'm God. Death can't hold me. I'm alive. And you're alive. 
Let's go get them. Do you understand the cross? Did you ever come to a point in your life when you understood it that way that you deserve to die just like me? Just like everybody in this room? But Jesus died in your place? That will put an end to all your thoughts about becoming a Christian, becoming forgiven for your sins by just doing better, by living as Jesus taught, by doing the best you can. That will put an end to that when you understand that you were out without hope. And Jesus saw you in that condition and he had business with a judge and he went and took the penalty for you. And when you accept that, at a point in time, at a point in time, say, Jesus, I accept you as my Savior. At that point, God counts Jesus' death as the punishment you deserve and you walk out of the courtroom a free man with all the power you need to live the life that God has called you to. Joshua was rescued out of Egypt. Have you been? The second point, Joshua did not cop out from responsibility. Look at Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17. The first time Joshua's name is mentioned in Scripture, it's always very important to look at the very first time a particular doctrine or a, a name is mentioned. You'll find something about the general teaching of that, about that doctrine or person the first time it's mentioned. It's called the Law of First Mention. A very simple rule of thumb in biblical interpretation. Exodus 17, and look at verse 8. Remember the Israelites were out of the land of Egypt. They had been redeemed, the book of Exodus. They're walking out of Egypt now, and they were thirsty, and God gave them water. And a tribe wanted the water, a tribe, the Amalekites, the men of Amalek. And in verse 8, Exodus 17, that Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, first time his name is mentioned in the scripture, Moses to Joshua, choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek tomorrow. I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And Joshua, notice this, he didn't cop out. Joshua did what Moses told him to do. Now Amalek, get this picture please. Amalek in scripture is often used, is typically used, as a picture of the flesh. Remember what I said last week about the flesh? That those who are dead are controlled by the flesh, but those who are alive still have the flesh. We're not controlled by it anymore. Amalek is a picture of the flesh, of all those desires that I have, of all those problems that I have, of that, of that worry, of that anxiety, of that depression, of that fear, of that temptation, of that lust, of that anger, of that bitterness. Amalek is the source of all that. My flesh is the source of all that. And Moses said to, he said to uh, Joshua, Joshua, go fight with your flesh. Go fight with Amalek. You got a temptation, you got a problem, go deal with it. Do something about it. How do you deal with it when Amalek attacks you? I've mentioned before, it's true, that the biggest problem that I wrestle with is depression. Very, very easy for me to get depressed. When Amalek attacks, when I start getting depressed, you know how I deal with it sometimes? I go to bed and think about it. That's dumb. That's what I do sometimes. They go, boy, I'm so depressed, I don't know what to do. Well, I just, may I'll go to bed and pray for a while. I go to bed and pray for a while and get more depressed. They go, where's the power? Where's the power? How do I get a hold of this power? You ever talk to anybody who had a problem? And it seems that so much of the time they spend their energy in just thinking about the feeling problems that they have. I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I'm worried, this is going wrong, I don't know what's happening in my life, I wish I had power, and on and on and on and on and on, and they never come to grips with making a decision as to what to do about the problem. A sure way not to lay hold of God's power 
to cop out from responsibility. You see what so many of us do when we're faced with temptation? How do we handle it? Just an example of Amalek. You're faced with temptation and something is pushing you to give in to it. And how do we handle it? Picture your mind like a tape recorder. Ask yourself, what tape are you playing? If you were to turn it up and listen to the tape in your brain right then, what would you hear? Probably you'd hear something like, oh, hope I don't give in. Oh, that's so terrible. Oh, that's wrong. God, I wish you'd help me do this. It's terrible. I don't know why I get so like this. It's so tempting. I wish I'd be in heaven now. Why does that go on like this? And you're just going on and on and on. And then pretty soon you go ahead and do it. And then you say, where's the power? You played the wrong tape. That's a tape of faith. That's a tape of cop-out. Because I guarantee you that underneath the, all those words about, oh, Lord, help me, I have all these problems, I wish I could get rid of them. Underneath all that, you know what you're saying? If I just kind of talk to myself long enough, then when I give in, I won't feel so guilty. All right. That's what you're saying. That's what I say. really is. Oh, I shouldn't have that second piece of pie. I know I shouldn't. Lord, help me. Oh, oh, I had the pie. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Where's the power? I knew I was going to have the pie all along. I just wanted to delay it so I wouldn't feel so guilty. We cop out when we face Amalek. It's interesting that God had Joshua fight with Amalek first. You read that God did not allow Joshua to eliminate Amalek. He simply discomfited or put him at bay for a season. And then God says to, to Moses, Moses, rehearse in the ears of Joshua not in the ears of Israel, rehearse in the ears of Joshua that I'm going to destroy Amalek someday. What's the idea? The idea, I believe, is this. Are you wrestling with Amalek? Are you wrestling with the problem? Do you have a difficulty in your life? And what should you do about it? Just spin about it in your mind for a long time? No. Say to yourself, all right, what can I do? Is there any single step that I can take? Maybe it's a small step. Maybe I can't conquer my problem in a day, but maybe there's one small thing I can do about it. Maybe I could simply go do the laundry. Maybe I could just balance the checkbook. Maybe I could go talk to somebody if I'm shy. Maybe I could go apply for a job if I'm out of one. Maybe I could take some step. What step can I take? And let me guarantee you, there's always a step. There's always a step. There is no temptation taken you. But that's what's common to man. God's faithful. He'll never let anything happen to you without providing a way out. A step-by-step procedure for getting out of it. But what do we do? We spin with Amalek for a while and never go fight him. Joshua... When Moses said, go fight Amalek, Joshua said, okay. They went. What do we say? Oh, I'm pretty scared. Of course you're scared. It's like my favorite example, the Lord telling Peter, Peter, come out of the boat. Take a walk. Peter says, Lord, there's big waves out there. <laughs> the Lord says, I'm God, Peter. I made the waves. Peter says, Lord, I believe you're God. I really believe you're God, but I'm not getting out of this boat. Peter, get out of the boat. Lord, I'm scared. Don't you understand? I have a problem. Lord, couldn't you counsel with me for a while? Couldn't you help me get rid of my fears? Lord, I'm depressed about this situation. Lord, I'm heading into turmoil. Counsel with me. Lord says, Peter, get out of the boat. Lord, how do I do it in the middle of my emotional turmoil? How do I get out of the boat? How do I lay hold of the power? The Lord says, take your left leg, swing it over. You do! As opposed to obsessively copping out. Point three. Joshua accepted without complaint difficult circumstances. Look at Exodus 24. 
Remember that Moses went to the mountain to receive the law of God, to receive the instructions that God has for his people? In Exodus 24, in verse 13, a very interesting, oftentimes neglected fact is made known here. Verse 13, so Moses arose with Joshua, the servant, the man of spiritual power, and a few books later. But at this point, God's preparing him. God's teaching him how to lay hold of the power. And Moses took, takes, takes Joshua with him up the mountain. As you read the story, what you'll discover is that Joshua was not allowed to go all the way up. They got halfway and Moses said, Joshua, you wait right here and I'm going up. Now picture Joshua. You ever been in a circumstance like that? Here is somebody else who seems to be enjoying fellowship with God. They're way up in the mountain. They're experiencing the very presence of God. And down there is a bunch of sinners who are just enjoying sinful pleasure. And here you are in the middle. You have neither God nor sin. What it feels like. There's no peace from God. There's no pleasure from sin. You have nothing. Remember in circumstance, you just didn't like it all. Well, Joshua was. For 40 days and for 40 nights, he sat on the hillside by himself. No rebellion. No sense of, why am I here? Why did God pick me to sit in a hill for 40 days? Ever in the middle of a circumstance that you didn't like, maybe a family setting, maybe a financial problem, things aren't going the way you want to, you want them to, and you're just upset and you just complain and you just, I don't like this, I don't like the way things are. No, Joshua did. He just sat there and accepted it, apparently. We have indication of that because when Moses came back down and saw Joshua again, Joshua didn't complain. Joshua was ready to go and carry on the job. And he went back down the hill with Moses. He didn't sneak down to the camp because when they got there, he was as surprised as Moses was at what was happening. So Joshua just sat there. Let me tell you this. The third principle in laying hold of the power of God, the first is you've got to be a Christian. Recognize Christ died for your sins. The second principle is you must not cop out from responsibility. If you have a problem, don't spin about the problem. Decide on a course of action and go to it. God's power will be there. The third principle is in whatever circumstance you find yourself, you bow the knee to a sovereign God and say, Lord, thank you that I'm here. But you say, I don't like being here. Remember what Paul said? We're buried with Christ so we can walk in newness of life and the power of the resurrection. To get to the power of the resurrection, we have to first be buried with Christ. What does that mean? It means more than just trusting Christ as our Savior. Yes, it means that, but it means experimentally dying to self. What does that mean? I don't like my circumstances. I don't like where I am. I don't like what's happening in my life. But I'm no longer in charge. You're in charge. Lord, you want me to serve you wherever I happen to be. Lord, I right now thank you not for the problems that I'm having because I don't like them at all. But Lord, I thank you that I can serve you right in the middle of these circumstances. Is your attitude one of accepting the circumstances, of thanking the Lord for the chance to serve him? Or is your attitude one of murmuring and complaining and, and, complaining and rebelling and griping? A sure way to block power in your life. Joshua didn't do that. Let me summarize what I'm saying. The secret of contentment, of living the way God wants us to, no matter what our circumstances, the secret is simply this. We have all the power we need to do it. So how do we lay hold of it? How do we move the mountains of depression and anxiety and fear? How do we move them? First of all, make sure you're a Christian. 
make sure you understand that being a Christian does not mean living a certain way. Being a Christian means that you know that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and without him the bailiff would have taken you to the execution chamber. And your basis for freedom is not how you live but the fact that Jesus died. And there was a point in your life when you trusted Christ as your Savior. If you've not done it, you can do it right now. That's the first step. Apart from that first step, all that I'm saying is meaningless. There's no power. You must be rescued out of Egypt as Joshua was. Step two, whatever problems you're having, make a decision on how you're going to handle it. Just some course of action. Are you avoiding any responsibility in your life at all? Are you avoiding your devotions? Are you avoiding talking to people? Are you avoiding coming out to church? Are you avoiding your laundry, your checkbook, washing your car? Are you avoiding anything? Oh, yes, but I'm so depressed. Wait a minute. Don't cop out. Do it. Oh, but I can't. I'm so, yes, you can. No, really, yes, you can. Don't argue with me. I've got the weight of scripture on my side. You're going to lose. And go do it. Something small. Don't cop out. Don't let your brain spin with cop-out type obsessive preoccupation with how you feel, with what your problems are. If you're counseling with a friend, chatting with a friend about your problems, rather than saying, I feel so bad, rather say, help me plan a strategy as to what to do. Don't cop out. Step three, wherever you are, say, Lord, I might not like it. Lord, I I really want to serve you. I really want to serve you. I'd much rather serve you in the Bahamas. But if you want me to serve you in the middle of this circumstance that I'm in, the middle of my ill health, the middle of my broken marriage, the middle of my child problems, the middle of my money problems, Lord, I can still serve you in the middle of that. Lord, therefore, I say thank you for what's happening. Many of you have read Joyce Landorf's book, Morning Song, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, Morning Song. I believe it's in that book where she talks about her mother when she died. She learned of her illness that was fatal, terminal illness. She told her daughter, she called Joyce to her side and said, Joyce, in my life I've tried to teach you how a Christian lives. Now I want you to learn how a Christian dies. What's she saying? I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be used of you, to serve you on my hospital bed. I thank you for the opportunity to be used of you in the middle of a broken marriage. I thank you for the opportunity to be used of you in the middle of bankruptcy. When I say it, I say to myself, do I do any of that? It's so easy to stand behind a pulpit and say it. Catch me a Tuesday morning and ask me if I'm doing it. If these three conditions are met, you're a Christian, you're not copping out, and you're thanking the Lord for the chance to serve him, I believe you're going to grasp the power that God has for you. You're going to make it work. It's going to work as you choose by an act of your will to live for him. But it's hard. It's very hard. It's very, very difficult. And God has designed that each of us in our struggles and our, and our problems, that each of us depend upon one another in a body to make it work more effectively, more quickly, to lay hold of the power, to learn how to lay hold of it better. He wants it to make it happen. He wants us to learn how to make it happen in the context of a body. What can the body do to help? What can the body do to help make it work? That's the final sermon next week. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that the Lord Jesus Christ has been our Passover lamb.
that he did come into the courtroom as we were being taken away to be executed. Lord, help us not to have a good picture of ourselves as worth more than execution. Help us to realize that we are guilty before a holy God of sin, whether our sins are great and big or small and inconspicuous. Lord, we're all sinners. We all deserve your judgment. Help us to realize that. And then to realize that Jesus came into the courtroom and volunteered to go in our place to be executed, and he went. Lord, help us to realize that to appropriate the benefit of what he did, we must accept his death by faith as the death that we deserve. Lord, teach us what it means to be rescued out of Egypt. Lord, teach us what it means not to cop out from responsibility, but whenever we're spinning around in our minds with a problem, help us to think not so much of how do we feel, but what can I do? And then to believe that your power is there so we can lay hold of it by determining what to do and then doing. Lord, we pray that you'll help us to understand that no matter what circumstance we're in, that you've placed us there. No matter how painful, no matter how difficult, no matter what sins have been involved to produce these circumstances, that still you're a sovereign God. Above even our sin, the wrath of man is made to praise you. And in the middle of whatever our circumstances that you desire to use us for your glory, help us to thank you on that basis for wherever we are. And then with that attitude, Lord, help us to move out into the book of Joshua, to cross over Jordan, to fight with Jericho and Ai and the sons of Anak and all the giants and enemies that are there, and to experience your power, knowing we're believers, knowing we're not copping out, and knowing that we'll thank you for whatever happens in our lives. Help us to grasp the secret of power in the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To learn more, visit LargerStory.com.